I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at White Hot, the rise and fall of Abercrombie and Fitch. One of the things that Abercrombie did quite brilliantly was put up brown shutters over the windows and a big image in the front doorway at the entry. So you really couldn't see what was in the store unless you went into the store. No other mall retailer was doing that. I mean, they forced you to come over the threshold. Today, we're talking to director Allison Clayman. The clothing store Abercrombie & Fitch conquered malls in the late 1990s with gorgeous models at the door, pulsing dance beats from inside, and a fierce scent everywhere. It had the aura of a popular nightclub where only the cool kids could get in. But while the brand was running white hot, its popular all-American image began burning out. T-shirts with problematic graphics, executives behaving badly, a hypersexualized aesthetic, and its focus on being exclusionary wasn't just a marketing ploy. If you weren't young and white and had magazine cover good looks, then Abercrombie & Fitch was neither the store nor the employer for you. She basically said, I, I'm really surprised that you, that you even wanted to work there. She's like, I'm sure you were fine to clean up, but that store made it clear from my eyes that they didn't want people like us there. And I'm joined now by director Allison Clayman. Allison, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. Why did you want to make a documentary about a store? <laughs> well, I wouldn't have thought uh, at the outset, you know, um, but when this topic came up, uh, with the creative team that I work with um, on on many films, we, you know, realized as I started to talk to other people about um, Abercrombie and Fitch, every time you bring it up, first off, you immediately tap into something about uh, identity formation. People are immediately sharing with you these personal stories about, you know, where they grew up, where they shopped, what their parents thought of, you know, their social uh, milieu, you know, who was cool in their class, how they felt about their body, how much money they had. Like, it's really like get, cuts right to the core. It's something that touched uh, an entire generation. And I thought that that not only, you know, bodes well for what kind of audience might be there for the film, but I, you know, thought that there was something, um, you know, really important about the subject. But, you know, also this was a chance um, to tell a story about a system. Abercrombie and Fitch was a was more than just a store. You know, it was um, uh, it was a brand and an idea that kind of loomed large in the um, childhood and identity formation of so many young people. And when you actually look at the story and you want to say, quote unquote, you know, how did they become that? Like y- you actually get a chance to see these abstract concepts like. Uh, beauty standards or systematic or structural racism. And like, they actually can be concrete in this story. You can see how these things were leveraged and implemented from the top down um, and imposed on 
you know, stores all over the country. Yes. But the imagination of people all over the country and especially young people. Do you have that sort of visceral Abercrombie and Fitch gut reaction? Like, do you remember the first time you went into one and and what you experienced? I was not an Abercrombie shopper and and I wasn't even really the biggest mall person, Mm. I would say. But um, when you say Abercrombie and Fitch, not only is there something very specific conjured in my mind, but it's like, I also have this feeling of how it is this idealistic thing that was that was very clearly not me. Like I always felt like I was like, I'm getting a message here. It is. This is what is cool. This is what is hot. I don't necessarily see myself in it. And does it, it excite me and intimidate me at the same time? Yes. Like that's kind of how I remember it. There was the, the mall near me growing up. It's the King of Prussia mall. Oh yeah. Famous uh, mall. Yeah. Right. And we are just more of a, you know, like Abercrombie didn't have a sale rack, right? Like we were more of a, you know, maybe like the sale rack at the Gap, definitely going to Marshall's, TJ Maxx, kind of a, a shopping family. And so I think the one time I ventured into Abercrombie, you know, classically, my mom waited outside and the music was loud. It was dark. I think I ventured in to see like, is there a sale rack? And I was like, no, and I don't know what's going on here. And I'm just going to going to pop out. But we have other members of the team, like uh, producer uh, Haley, who was like, oh, I, you know, wore it all the time. I had my first kiss in Abercrombie and Fitch. We have another member of the team who was like Abercrombie ruled my high school uh, in Colorado. And I expressly identified myself as anti Abercrombie and Fitch. So it really is this thing or idea that you can locate yourself within, you know, from your high school landscape. Yeah. Oh, you know, one of my most uh, marked memories of shopping in the store, I mean, I was in my 20s, early 30s, because my high school days were spent being traumatized by Benetton, to be completely honest with you. Um, But I was like a size six or an eight, like at the Gap when Abercrombie was huge. Mm -hmm. And I remember going in and everything being way too small. First of all, much being, smaller. Yeah. And almost yeah. no clothes, like like near empty racks. Like it was like a Calvin Klein store is now or it was just like a few things out. Pitch black, as you said, so you don't even know how to like see things and, and looking at like an extra large and being like, who is this for? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I was really surprised about the straight up intentionality of that that I learned about in your documentary. It was a, it's almost like a store meant to make people feel bad. I remember like walking in and just being hit with the sense like, oh my God, they've bottled this. They have absolutely crystallized everything that I hate about high school and put it in a store. The intentionality, the top down nature of like, none of this was a coincidence. All of it was by design. Um, It was really fascinating to be able to explore all that. And I think, um, there's one on the one hand, there's sort of that thing of trying to be a cool place, like where, you know, you're hiring. It's almost like tactics that are used on social media, um, you know, IRL in the you know 90s, early 2000s. It's like finding influencers, a.k.a. the coolest, you know, college kids to come make their friends think it's a cool place, make the high schoolers look up to them. Um, and certainly there's a very superficial aspect to that. But then it gets really sinister, right? You know, it's about more than just, you know, are the people good looking? Do they seem like they're having a fun time? Like that's sort of maybe the most innocuous way to describe it. But what was actually happening was uh, they were having uh, management come from higher up from the corporate headquarters in 
Ohio, you know, regional managers coming down to these stores run by, you know, people in their 20s, young 20s, and looking around and saying things like, you know, you have like these people are not good looking enough. They're not cool enough, but also they're not white enough. Yeah. Um, And that was truly shocking. And again, making something that we all uh, understand in this sort of uh, seemingly uh, invisible hand of, of racism that can happen in this country. It's like, no, here is a great example of how it is explicit and how it is enforced within an institution. And it, it like it was truly the most shocking thing. Yeah. One of the things you point out briefly in the documentary, and I'm wondering if you um, thought about this more while you were making it, a distinct feature of those stores were these like blinds that were across the window. So you couldn't see in, right? So you couldn't Mm -hmm. really see into the stores. It was very dark. As we said, the music was very pulsating. There was this smell. And I don't remember ever seeing an adult walk in with their kids. So it was almost like a nightclub for kids in, in, in many ways. And, you know, it's almost like that environment of toxicity could breed because, it's like the there were no adults in the room to call it out and say there's something really wrong here. It's like I don't know. Did you get the sense of like the, like this exclusionary thing? Like let's keep the let's keep the the staff young. Let's keep the clientele young, so that like no adult lawyer will walk in and say like there's something really effed up about this place. Yeah, I definitely think it was designed to make you know adults not want to come in. Like you know, so many people who talk about feeling like, you know, it, they were repulsed or their parents didn't want to go in. It's, that was 100% by design. Um, I think the whole blinds thing and and the darkness and the music, it was meant to like attract the, you know, A, the curious. So then you have to go in, you can't just window shop. Um, but also for young people to want to come in and feel like it's a space that's theirs. What I think is fascinating though, is that it's not that this like cloistered environment created the exclusionary, certainly the the racist exclusionary uh, aspect, because that really was imposed by adults. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that I think is so fascinating. Like when you're running the store on a store manager level, I mean, again, and this is, they had many, many stores, so there can be all these different examples, but people were being hired because managers at store levels liked them, thought they were good workers, were putting them on shifts, or they just needed workers too. Um, And it was coming from above, frankly, people from an older generation, for the most part, who were coming in and saying like, wait, that doesn't conform to what we say is cool. I want to talk a little bit about the building of the brand itself and its history, because I think most people assume that Abercrombie and Fitch is a made up name that was slapped on a store, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, that had a, you know, just an aesthetic to it. But it was a real store. It was sort of a waspy hunting and fishing store with a long history. Um, I think a lot of people don't know that. Was that something that you were surprised to learn or had you known that before? Yeah, that established 1892 wasn't just, you know, something that they put on the clothes, but it actually there was a, a, you know, Mr. Abercrombie and a Mr. Fitch. And eventually they merged their stores and they were kind of a a sporty outfitter, you know, for for the sporty gentleman at the beginning, think like legendary folks from uh, Teddy Roosevelt to Ernest Hemingway. 
they were sort of a, a, a really well-established outfitter for these kinds of endeavors and had a big flagship store on Fifth Avenue. Um, so yeah, I was surprised by that. But then it's important to remember that actually the way that the brand sort of reinvents itself or Mike Jeffries, the CEO who is brought in in 1992, reinvents it. There's sort of no continuity there except to write established 1892 and to kind of like the polish and the apparent, you know, sort of waspy legacy feeling and the elitist feeling is like great. But then being a sexy teen clothier is, really has nothing to do with the old Abercrombie and Fitch. Well, I will say it did remind me of it in one way. It was almost like the brand he invented was like, these are the grandkids and great grandkids sure. of these old American elite. And this is how they would be. They would be naked driving jeeps on beaches with not a care in the world like that's that to me is like the aspiration totally. of it. around around a bonfire in the adirondacks <laughs> or maybe out in montauk 100 percent. it definitely it's meant to feel like waspy old money or you know prep schools it's this sort of fever dream of you know upper crust northeast america and then they had a brand hollister that is the same thing where a lot of a lot of Californians were like, this is clearly a sort of Ohio company's idea of what California is. <laughs> Just like it's an Ohio company's idea of what, you know, preppy Northeast is. Mm. It also be, kind of became this college campus recruitment tool it was almost like viral marketing. Right. The Abercrombie Scouts are on campus. The bet was that if we get the, the right guys in the right fraternities to wear the clothes and be ambassadors for the clothes, then that's going to other people are going to. Um, want to copy that. It was like pre-digital, like influencer marketing. What's interesting is that was like both to staff the stores and to kind of entice people like maybe you'll end up in a catalog, you know, maybe you'll have a chance to go to one of our retreats or you'll end up being a model. But in truth, I remember, you know, if you said in that time, if you were like, oh, my friend works for Abercrombie & Fitch or my friend got recruited to work at Abercrombie & Fitch, like that was code for my friend is very attractive, like mm. very hot, you know, like that was definitely always like a high compliment and you knew what it meant. It probably meant that you were, you know, if you were a guy also that you were pretty jacked and, and white. if you were a woman, <laughs> you were pretty skinny and yeah, most likely you were very white. So the first sign of trouble um, here, I mean, we were talking about all the racism that was built into this company. Um, publicly, the first sign of trouble was the backlash to that Wong Brothers laundry T-shirt. It featured that stereotypical graphic, the tagline, two Wongs make it white. When it was all over, you know, was there any lesson learned at the corporate level after that first big public scandal? I mean, when someone uh, in the film talks about how they were forced to gather all the shirts and burn them at headquarters, <laughs> I found that to be a really shocking image. Mm. Um, but I think that the it, that was the kind of reaction. It was like, okay, well, that one wasn't good. Let's like get rid of the evidence of that and then just keep on going. Do as many things as you can. First of all, the graphic t-shirt business, as we learned, um, you know, making this film and talking to people, it was an incredibly lucrative part of the business, even though you think of it as, you know, this kind of preppier clothing. But if you remember, graphic tees were just super in at the time. And it could be anything like fake, um, you know, summer camp logos or sporting logos or school logos. But then also they had, it, it really went beyond just the the two Wong's shirt, which again was it's like just so weird to look back on. You're like, so, and and you really feel for Phil Yu, who's, uh, you know, a, a 
uh, journalist and and a writer in the film who talks about being a kid at that time and just being like, is this what's cool, you know, about my identity? You know, they're going to they're going to they're operating in a bubble, right? They're operating in a place where they don't see what, what it comes down to at that consumer level of this Asian kid looking at these shirts and being like, what is this bullshit, you know, or being confused, like, is this supposed to be cool? Like, this is all I see of my of myself when I look at pop culture. Like, maybe this is what I'm supposed to accept um, as an Asian American, you know? I don't think that the brand learned anything for sure. I think that it sparked a new generation of young, you know, especially campus organizer, you know, Asian American student activism, which is really, really cool. Um, that really did kind of get organized and protest the, the st- at the stores. Um, and they were kind of doing it all on like email listservs. And, you know, it was before social media, but they were using digital tools and protesting in real life. Um, so it definitely helped some um, groups kind of coalesce and uh, articulate what made them upset about the brand. But I don't think that was enough to move the needle at Abercrombie headquarters. And I, I think what's really important is people still bought those shirts. Yeah. You know, it, it didn't, it didn't, you know, stem the tide of their, you know, consumers coming and buying these things. Yeah. I mean, it really sort of to me reflected that same frat boy culture that the brand is perpetuating, right? Because these are like the kind of wink, wink, nod, nod. We make these jokes, you know, amongst ourselves, depending on who's in the room, kind of like humor that is very emblematic of that like waspy culture that is what the brand is all about. I just kept thinking that over and over again, right? Like it's shameless in many, many ways Um, because this is the same time that, you know, you took note in the documentary that if you weren't a young, white, attractive model, you got a stockroom job and there's footage of that in your documentary, which is stunning. Where did that come from? Are those like videos that were posted by by employees, right? Totally. And what's really hard is I feel like a lot of the, um, you know, key years of this story happened in kind of an internet, you know, no man's land or sort of, you know, dead zone from where we are now, meaning it's like (laughs) pre-YouTube. But there were some videos that had migrated to YouTube that came from even, you know, from the earlier years, the quality might be a little lower, but you see, it's like me. And the photos weren't even like, look at the discrimination at this store. It was just like, me and my friends in the stock room at Hollister or Abercrombie and Fitch. And that was some of the, you know, painstaking digital uh, digging that we did. But when we found those videos, we're like, there was zero, if not maybe one like white employee. Yeah. So just to even find the ephemera like that, that kind of um, reinforced the the story on the ground um, was really interesting. And I would say also, there, there. We did find over the course of making this film over the last few years, there were definitely tweets, YouTube posts, kind of you know personal rants or personal diaries, kind of where people talk about their bad experiences with the store. And when this movie, you know, the poster dropped and the trailer dropped in the last couple of weeks, and if you go into especially the quote tweets, um, you know, and some comments you oh, people are sharing more and more of those stories. And I, I love it. It's like people are like, you know, oh, I wish they interviewed me for the film because I have and just the stories all echo the stories that, you know, are 
in the film from, you know, the characters that we have on camera, but they all represent so many people. Yeah. It's like they wouldn't have been able to get away with this post 2007 Facebook iPhone era, right? Like this was just pre that. So no, it really is an example where, you know, every story that spans like the creation of social media obviously has this moment where you're like, and then social media changed things in every way. Um, And I think like, this is one where you can you can trace it very clearly. So after this lawsuit, there was this uh, decree put in place to implement more diversity uh, in the company. And I did sense some unease in your interview with Todd Corley. He was brought in to um, implement some of those initiatives in the company. He embraced the challenge, uh, but he bristled at the grassroots campaign that accused the company of still catering to non-exclusive clientele. Did he strike you as someone who felt that he accomplished what he was supposed to accomplish there? I think so. I think he um, he often talks about this sort of uh, this generational kind of movement. And he he gives a lot of credit um, to, you know, again, the young people in his time were millennials. So for young people who are like millennials or old people, there was a time when millennials were young people. And he <laughs> talks about um, also sort of I think he has a really realistic way of breaking down, you know, and being realistic. Frankly, he's working underneath Mike Jeffries and some of his colleagues, some, you know, some of them are almost like they're not just Gen X. They're like and maybe not even baby boomers. It's like, you know, the greatest generation. Mike Jeffries was um, kind of up there and he just talks about all these different sort of generational attitudes towards change. He might like say that in a more generous way, (laughs) you know, just even just the idea of change. I've always been cautious about how I talk about my experience, because when I left, I mean, uh, the place doesn't look like it did when I inherited it. And if nothing else, that to me is success. I think, you know, the fact that when he came in, there were these targets and the makeup of the staff on the ground definitely changed. It went from, you know, only around 10% of their store employees being um, people of color to being 53% by the time he left. So that is definitely an accomplishment. But I think um, in between there, you know, there's a lot that, was very, very challenging. And I also think the fact that the scope of this consent decree, which was part of just uh, the settlement of the lawsuit, you know, um, was really focused so much on the store. And there was never any cleaning of house Mm. on the top level. And let's be clear, like, you know, Mike Jeffries was the architect of of this brand and its, its identity in this period of time. But it takes a lot more than one man to, you know, enforce these discriminatory policies and put out exclusionary marketing across the nation and then globally. Right. And the fact that they, you know, had this massive lawsuit settlement and they had court monitored things that they needed to change over many years. It kind of feels like it was like a paltry response um, and a very sort of focused response. Todd Corley was the chief diversity officer at Abercrombie during that time. And he is also the highest ranking executive that spoke to us on camera. Hmm. I mean, we keep evoking, obviously, Mike Jeffries, the CEO at the time. And, you know, his influence on the brand, he built the brand, he made this whole system that we're talking about. And, you know, he he talks about catering to these cool kids. And I'm just curious, like your flash impression of Jeffries, you know, was he a cool kid or did he just like really want to be one? And this aspiration was a lot about who he wanted to be. I feel like it's more the latter. And we did learn more, you know, about his 
backstory and and it really does sync up a lot more with, you know, it wasn't that he was the captain of the football team and the prom king or all the things that, you know, the people who are the ideal, uh, you know, Abercrombie employee or model as we have in the film, like Ryan, he didn't have that kind of background. I, I think that as he became the CEO, you know, who of a very successful brand under his direction, I think he was able to live out a little bit more of the fantasy of what that store was. You know, people talked about him always dressing very casually. He like only wore flip-flops. Um, he did, you know, get plastic surgery, you know, over the years and, you know, presumably to, to keep a more youthful or to, you know, strive for a different, more youthful look. He said, are we exclusionary? Absolutely. He said, not everyone can wear our clothes. I don't want everyone essentially wearing our clothes. He talked about going after the cool kids. He talked about, and again, this word, the all-American um, cool kid. He had, he's sort of fetishized the all-American uh, boy. You know, you can feel in the film, right? There's a thread of the kind of uh, CEO that Mike was. And he has that thing that there are so many other films and scripted projects right now about other companies where there's sort of that, like a CEO who makes so much money for the company and everybody kind of treats him like a genius. And um, there's a lot of decadence at the top. And the film definitely goes into that, but not too deeply because I feel like in that sense, the Abercrombie and Fitch story becomes like every other Hmm. story of an American company with a CEO who behaves with impunity and, you know, the board kind of, you know, stacks the board and enables themselves to kind of live, you know, the life they want until they get reined in. That's sort of like a classic story now, especially in stuff on TV in the last like couple months, I would say, but it became sort of not the thing that was the most unique and important about the Abercrombie and Fitch story. And that's why we focus so much on the people at the stores, the models, the um, the image that was being put out and what it did to consumers, because we think that's where the story is really, really important and distinctive. Speaking of distinctive, your film itself has a very distinctive look. Uh, first, many of the interviews are done in these very cool kind of like waspy iconography locations that seem very connected to the Abercrombie and Fitch uh, brand sort of um, like origins. Can you just talk about that choice and how you made that? Yeah. Oh, and our production designer, Smiley Stevens, you know, led the charge. This was, um, you know, a a documentary uh, made uh, about the past. So we have, you know, graphics and um, archive, but, you know, we were like, there's going to be interviews. These are people talking about things that happened to them in the past. What can we do to um, give this a look? This is a film also about aesthetics. We can't really phone this one in. And what we decided to do was to find locations essentially that felt like I, you know, either you could be in, you know, we've, we've, we've stepped into an Abercrombie set, you know, whether it's, something that would have been an inspiration point for a set from an earlier era or whether it's something that feels a little more like, you know, that the that it was done in the 90s or 2000s. But we, you know, went to 
explorers and adventurer clubs or like a shuffleboard <laughs> uh, court, a lot of, you know, stately um, mansions in, in, you know, the different locations where we need to find people, uh, um, a, an arts house, like um, the designed by uh, Maybeck in the San Francisco area, you know, a Sausalito like boathouse. I mean, we, you know, we, we really tried to find places that felt like, you know, maybe this is a library or a smoking room or um, I love Anthony with his all the, you know, animal heads. I mean, I don't really love the like animal heads and <laughs> horns, but it's a wild. It's OK. Background. They're already dead. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, they, they, were, <laughs> they were killed long ago by men wearing Abercrombie and Fitch. Um, and yeah, so that's where we put all of our, our all of our characters. And there's a fun little Easter egg. If you, you know, you might have to look on your TV. It might be too small if you were like watching on a phone or an iPad. But um, in the wide shot, you can find a little bottle of the cologne, uh, Abercrombie's cologne fierce that we put in the background of, of each of them just for ourselves. It was a little fun thing that we did. And and the last day of shooting, the bottle broke oh. and um, Smiley's shoes smelled like fierce forevermore but we felt like that was the sign that it, you know the the shoot had come to an end very divisive smell that cologne are you yay or nay on that smell <laughs> yeah no thanks. no thanks so the second look i just wanted to ask you about that very cool two-dimensional color forms cutout style of your animation what were the marching orders for the animators in your documentary yeah, so we um, collaborated with a company called And Or, who are amazing. And we also worked with uh, a company based in Philly named Do Wave. They did our miniatures, but kind of both use this technique that you're talking about. So, you know, whether it's computer generated or actually physically, we went for this collage mode. And the idea that there are these little figures, again, first of all, we had to recreate these stores because you, Abercrombie and Fitch does exist today, but the stores don't look the way they did in the past. You can't, even if we could, which we probably couldn't go in and film in a store, it wouldn't evoke, you know, it wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't be the store that we're describing and kind of analyzing. So we had to recreate them. And we did things that were a combination of digital collaging and also physically building uh, a miniature like mall store. And we kind of had the cutouts of people, some stock photos and some just real people who, who posed. Uh, th this is a brand that's very interested in texture and the feeling of the clothing. Like when you talk to designers, everything is about like real fabric materials, you know, and, and, and they're the way they feel on your hand. They had these catalogs. These weren't digital catalogs. These weren't Instagram posts. It was like physical magazines that people had. So we wanted to kind of have this feeling of materiality and like the real objects. And I also always just had this vision of like, you know, paper dolls that you can like put different clothes on too. So that was sort of the inspiration um, that we had that influenced both the, the real life miniature store that was built and also all of the graphics that that work with that. I couldn't help but notice there weren't a ton of actual Abercrombie and Fitch clothing uh, items represented in the aesthetic of the film. I just, as something that I couldn't help but notice, like that was not super present. Well, I mean, certainly the marketing didn't have that much clothing either. Yeah, that's true. People were just naked, <laughs> you know, and we definitely, we did one shoot early on where we had, you know, where we just bought clothes from today that had the logo on it still back then big logos was really, really oh, yeah. in fashion and important. <laughs> and it's like, it's waned, you know, it's not as intense on all the clothes right now. So we did one shoot kind of on a, on a white psych with, you know, 
models and props. We also had a lot of fun with, you know, props on the, on this, this film too. Um, but yeah, when people came, certainly it was like, where would you want? And, you know, nobody showed up in Abercrombie clothes. Well, you mentioned the stores looking different today. Abercrombie is repositioning itself. They say they've seen the error of their ways. They want to be more inclusive to uh, all ethnicities, to more body shapes. Um, they're going to turn the lights on and then the music down. In an era where retail is losing out to online shopping, do you think it's too late for this turnaround? I mean, I think they've been working on this for several years. I think that they've had to respond as much to changing social norms or, you know, expectations of more inclusivity, more body positivity, more diversity. They've had to respond to those as much as they've had to respond to fast fashion and online shopping. Um, and if you listen to, you know, uh, you know, public investor calls, you know, that they, that is what they talk about a lot. It's like we took down the the blinds on the outside of the store so people can see in what an innovation. I mean, truthfully, the calls don't really spend the ones that I listen to don't spend time talking about, you know, we, we how how they feel about their racist hiring practices in the past. It's more about, you know, these kind of things that they're trying to do again to make money. That's ultimately what any company is there. They're there to sell clothes and they're trying to make money. Now it's considered good business practice, um, you know, for the most part, to be more inclusive in your marketing. And that is what they're doing. Allison Clayman, White Hot is White Hot. I loved it. Thank you so much for talking to me about it. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Allison Clayman, director of White Hot, The Rise and Fall of Abercrombie & Fitch. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>